Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Tar Heel Prescription, a student-run podcast here at the UNC School of Medicine. My name is Abdul. And my name is Peter. We are so excited to bring you another episode of the Navigating Medicine series, which engages a topic that has not been talked about enough historically and has thankfully started to get more attention and focus in recent years. If you haven't guessed it by now, it's wellness. And today, we are going to examine wellness and its value in medicine from both a faculty and a student perspective. Dr. Weil, Simpkins advisor, and our very own Anu. Thank you both so much for being here. If you would, please tell us a little more about yourself and what you do here at UNC. So uh, I have been at UNC for 23 years. I grew up in New York City and uh, never thought I would live in North Carolina for most of my adult life. Went to college at Yale, went to medical school at Rochester after a circuitous path through the humanities. Um, Did training in residency up at Yale, and then my husband and I moved here in 1998, and we've been here ever since and made our family here. And I'm a professor of medicine and social medicine. I teach medical students in a course called SHS4 and also a course called Healer's Art and also in CBLC in my clinic. I'm an advisor to medical students some in this very room. And what else do I do? I help run the Beacon program, which is the domestic violence program in the hospital. I also work with a SHS5 course where we're sending students, used to send students out into the patient homes, and now we're having phone calls to them uh, to try to re-engage in healthcare. Uh, And I precept the residents in clinic. So I do a lot of work with students, faculty, residents, patients. I have other identities besides being a doctor, right? Like being a wife and a, a parent and a dog owner. Um, yoga practitioner, um, yeah, and some other identities that maybe will come up in, in terms of talking about wellness. Hi, all. It's weird to be on the other side of the mic for this one, but as you all may know, if you've heard some other podcasts, my name is Anamika or Anu. I am a second-year med student. I don't do any of the things that Dr. Wild mentioned. I'm mostly involved with learning. Um, originally from Cary, North Carolina, went to uh, University of Pittsburgh for undergrad, so it's nice to be back home for med school. I feel like given today's subject, um, launching into like the nitty-gritty of what I do at UNC is is you know, not as apt as just telling you some of the other identities that I have outside of being a med student. Um, But I will say some of the things that I love um, that I'm involved with at UNC are obviously being a part of the Simpkins fam as a peer advocate. Um, Really love being involved with humanities and mentorship and mental health research. But outside of that, I identify as a writer. I do a lot of poetry, working on a memoir, um, an artist, whether that's piano, singing or dancing, anything, and um, an athlete in some capacity, being a tennis player and a fit-on fiend. If you don't know what fit-on is, I will talk your head off about it because it's a fantastic app. That is my plug for that. But so excited to talk to you all about this stuff today. Well, it is an absolute joy to have a Simpkins reunion on the show once again. Sorry, not sorry, Cross. Uh, It's okay at this point. I'm an honorary Simpkins member anyway. (laughs) This is true. If you remember, our last Simpkins reunion was with our very own Dr. P in our psychiatry episode. Check that out if you haven't already. Anyways, to dive right in and get the ball rolling, wellness is a big buzzword that can mean something different to everyone. What are your personal definitions of wellness? So it's a very hard term to define, right? It's sort of like the thing that is not there. Um, I'm just reading this book right now called Life is Hard, which is probably not a great subject for today, but it's a philosophy book kind of about the meaning of life and work. And um, Karen Sietia, who is the author, makes this great point about how when you're in pain, you're constantly in pain and thinking about it. And when you feel good, you don't even realize that you've gotten out of pain. And I think wellness is kind of like that, actually, is that when you're feeling great or having joy, you're not thinking, now I am well. But when you're not feeling that way, you really know what it is to not have it. So that's a strange not definition, but I think it's hard to, to find an all-encompassing definition. Maybe Anu will have a better one. No, I, I appreciate that you kind of start on that note because when I was thinking about this, um, 
I agree. I wasn't really thinking of wellness as, you know, what it sounds like, which is like a state of being well. Um, I actually think about it more as kind of self-awareness and I see it as um, like kind of a thermometer for your internal state. I, I see it more as an ability to, to kind of know how you're doing, know what's on your mind or what stress is present and evaluate whether you feel equipped or ready to manage the stress. And if not, then figuring out what the plan of action is going to be, whether that's reaching out for help, whether that is coming up with a plan to do something. So I agree, kind of like a, I don't know, odd definition, but I, I don't see it as kind of the literal idea of like being well, uh, being present, but more so just the ability to kind of self, you know, self-monitor and, and self-regulate and kind of go from there. I think it's fantastic that we even talk about the word to begin with. It's sort of like the core. It's a thing that didn't exist when I was in med school that we now think is the center of everything, right? There used to not be the core of the body. But without wellness, it's pretty hard to function. Before we discuss it in the context of medicine, tell us more about your personal experiences with wellness in general. Has your emphasis on wellness changed throughout your life? How have you nurtured your own mental or emotional health in your journey thus far? So I think it goes back to the question you just asked, right, is that we were not really thinking, at least I was not thinking planfully of how to make myself well. I think in the context of going to medical school, it came up naturally and organically when it was not present, kind of like like I said. Um, I guess as a medical student, I felt like I never had enough time in the day, and I could even remember, like, when am I going to have time to do my laundry? And somehow as we kind of get through medical school and residency and beyond, we can do a lot more things than we could do when we were a student. And I think that the wellness thing is a little bit like that also. Like, you can fit in more things than you realize as you're trying to kind of, it's almost like flexing a muscle. Like I used to go running with friends and that was something really important for wellness. And I would cook meals with friends so that we could have food for the week, which was like a great thing. But these were not like, now I'm having a wellness plan. It was like, I don't have food. I'm eating awful food. I don't feel well when I don't exercise. So like it all kind of came to me in the experience of, of things not going well. And actually with my scoliosis, I would feel better from an energy point of view when I was running, but then my back would hurt and I would still do it because I needed to have the energy so much. So the idea that there could be like other forms of exercise that I wouldn't also have to suffer through didn't really occur to me in medical school. So I think, you know, that that was an insight. It's like, why am I doing this particular form of exercise that is actually making my body hurt even as I feel a little better so I can survive those tests and sitting in the classroom all the time? Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's actually changed a lot. In residency, I was still running and my back was still hurting. Um, but then when I finally got to being a a faculty member and getting pregnant with my first son, I discovered yoga, which was kind of a life-changing event. I feel like you med students are so far ahead of me because I really wasn't even thinking about yoga. One other thing we did in med school, which was kind of beautiful in terms of wellness without calling it that, was couples massage training. Somehow that was a thing that the med school thought up as like a fun thing to engage students with their partners while trying to survive med school. That could give them a skill that would be cool. And I remember that as such a like weird outlier but very sweet thing that we learned to do as a med student. But it was like all in isolated chunks. So you all are so far ahead of where we all were. But once I discovered yoga when I was pregnant with my son, I kind of never turned back from that. And I think that was really an opening up about wellness journey and well-being and body not having to have pain. Because who is pregnant or post-pregnant and has less back pain than before? So that's why I've been doing yoga for 23 years, because it helps me not have pain. So it's kind of a cool thing. And it's not only the absence of pain, it's also the insight and the calming that kind of retrospectively I realized were really helpful things for well-being. But I never thought I'm doing yoga because I could be calmer or have more spiritual insight. It kind of it's come very organically for me, which is why it's funny to be speaking in any kind of, I don't know, I'm older than Anu, but not an expert in any way role about this because it's all been experiential for me. It's beautiful when you have one thing that can have multiple effects, like oh, yeah. yoga. Yeah, one and a half hours, calm down, stretch, strengthen, spiritual thoughts. It's a multitasker's type A person dream. 
And I also really want to bring that outlier that you mentioned of couples massage training back because that sounds fascinating, honestly. It was so strange. Um, But I guess if I had to kind of weigh in also on the question, um, I'm going to start a little bit strangely with clarifying that um, I didn't say my full name, but Anamika Singh. And um, I want to clarify that I'm a Rajput Singh and not a Punjabi Singh. Every time people hear the last name Singh, they oftentimes think that I'm Punjabi. And the reason I bring in uh, to context the Rajput um, context is because uh, for folks that may not be familiar, like Rajput is referring to kind of like warriors. Um, and that was like kind of like my my family heritage. And I grew up hearing um, uh, two very specific things. Um, one, my parents always used to say like, God helps those who help themselves. But also that you shouldn't, you know, tell others about some of the harder things that you're going through that should only be to your family because it's it's kind of seen as weakness and not in the sense, I want to clarify that even from, I think, how we discuss, you know, saying uh, stigma around mental health with that. My parents sometimes thought that, you know, if you share that with other people, they could use it against you or kind of see you as vulnerable. So a little bit of a different take on what I mean by weakness there. Um, but because that's what I grew up hearing, I like my avenues for wellness or what that was throughout middle and high school were you know, crying, which is healthy, um, journaling and, you know, exercise. Um, but then I went to college. I hit my greatest period of adversity on a lot of fronts. And that also included my family, unfortunately. And all of a sudden, the ways that I used, you know, to take care of myself and those tenets that I just mentioned to you, they weren't enough um, to, to make it through all the storms that I was going through in college. So I kind of felt pushed almost. It was just like this internal need to kind of like talk to people, actually to talk to people about what I was going through through um, and to, I don't know, just to have a space to kind of move what was going on so much inside all the noise that was going on inside and kind of have a space for it to go elsewhere. Um, And I think in doing that, I found that, you know, while no one had experienced exactly what I was going through, um, there were more people than I realized that could relate to some aspect of my experiences. And that honestly made me feel less alone. It made me feel more seen. And trust me, I could go on about this. I'm writing a memoir about it. But my big motivation right now coming out of all of that was to kind of harness my writing, which was like my original outlet, um, as well as like my personal experiences to advocate for the strength and vulnerability to talking about things. And honestly, the beautiful courage that comes with sharing our stories with each other, because that's honestly how we can learn more about each other, build deeper connections, and also just, you know, see that we're more alike than we are different just on a more societal scale. Did you find it easier when you started opening up to keep going and express your thoughts without like being kind of held back? I appreciate that question because honestly, it was actually a hit or a miss, even in terms of like, because it is a process, I have to say. It is a process to kind of find spaces you can, you know, you can you can take a chance on opening up to people, right? And sometimes, sometimes those spaces are not as productive as you would have hoped. And sometimes it ends up making you, sadly, feel worse, maybe for, you know, opening up. And then you're just like, oh, yeah, that that I wish I I wish they didn't know that actually anymore. Um, And, you know, those unfortunately, that kind of comes with the territory of being vulnerable. It's a hit or miss. And it's, it's hard to kind of find, you know, spaces. But I will say, like going through that process was really tough. And that was a source of adversity in itself. But when you find the people that you can you can open up to and that, you know, really resonate with you and actually just are with you through the storm, like, I mean, there's just nothing more beautiful about that. And honestly, like those folks became my family and allies when I started losing my own. So I appreciate the question. 
Can I add something since you made me think of things that I didn't really put in the category of well-being stuff, but which very much are? Um, and it's interesting because maybe it's generational in that um, the talking uh, out loud and, and vulnerability, I think, is a very um, 21st century thing. But I think my exploration of the same kinds of issues was a lot from reading. So I'm a really avid reader. And I think when I was curious or sad about something, I would read books that were stories that kind of tangentially went to that. And I would spend a lot of time kind of thinking about where those stories took me in my own life to try to solve problems. And so it was a quiet um, but along with that was talking to friends who would also be readers and thinkers like that about the, those important things. And I think another component thing that I didn't mention that was is, is very important to me is being out in nature. So that would also be a sense of relief and uh, quiet. And I could do that with other people too. But, uh, but I'm not sure I'm always putting myself completely out there like you. So I really admire the bravery there. No, thank you. <laughs> and I do a little bit of writing as well. So there's that too. So Writing rules, people. We could have a whole separate episode on writing. Don't get us started. Thank you so much for sharing that, guys. And turning to the context of medicine, what have you observed in your professional experiences in terms of attitudes to wellness, as well as advocacy for wellness? In your opinion, what should we be striving for in the future? Well, there's certainly been an evolution in thinking about wellness and trying to advocate for it in that we now have things like wellness champions. All of that stuff did not exist at all when I was in medical school. We've heard horror stories about medicine. Back then, yeah. Back then, yeah. Back then in the 20th century where nobody really cared about uh, work duty restrictions, at work hour restrictions, or family leave, or, yeah, I could tell many stories about unwellness in that in that earlier period. Um, and I guess it's it goes back to what we were saying, which is that wellness doesn't seem to capture exactly what we're aiming for. So when we make these committees about wellness, it's hard to say exactly what is their purview, um, just from both of our definitions of that. And I've served on some of those committees. And sometimes the things that make people feel better aren't the internal things that individuals do, but they're structural things that may or may not be able to be changed. So it's hard if you come up with an idea that you think might help a lot of people, and then there may or may not be willingness or ability to make those changes. So it's, it's hard to advocate for wellness, and it's not the same for any one person, I think. That's why these are hard questions questions that you're asking, you smart medical students. I mean, I think one thing is clear is that wellness can mean different things to different people, and we should make space for whatever helps with well-being. I mean, these even these wellness days, like, do whatever you want with that day. Some people might sleep. Some people might not sleep at all. Some people might be outside, inside, reading, talking, all of those different things. Um, so the wellness day thing, I think, it's an attempt to acknowledge a, a deep difficulty, but I don't, I don't know that it's an answer in and of itself. Um, I think it's to not be stressing people out so much that they feel the need and craving to find wellness, right? If we were sort of striving in the future to help with more balance and well-being to be possible, we might not have to focus so much on it as a separate entity. I feel like when I think more about what you're saying, Dr. Weil, it's, it, it is a good point that honestly, right, it's it's thinking about, I think, like preventative versus treatment sort of in the sense that, like, you know, as opposed to just having to give the wellness days, once you've reached a point where you're needing to seek that out, we really should be thinking more upstream um, and thinking more about you know, how how can we kind of incorporate things in between, you know, as we're going through this so that it doesn't have to be that we build up this huge amount of time um, that, you know, we're depleted and then we do have to, you know, kind of fill our cup. Um, but I think overall, I, I, I just I agree with you. I feel like we need to be heading more towards you know, I, we've started off having a lot of active conversations. And I think that's great, right? I mean, that's a place to start. But I think ultimately, I think creating more of a formal place for like plans and procedures in our work and school environments that, you know, will outline how mental health will be supported, not just resources, but like procedures for, as you said, you know, if you need a wellness day, if you genuinely, if you need to take that time, like having the option to, you know, to do that and outlining exactly how you can do that 
just we need to have more formal language and just like a formal component that is tangible and visible than just having these conversations like we're having right now, which again is incredible and so needed. It's the it's the starting point. But I think ultimately, in, in my opinion, I feel like we need to be headed towards something more formal and and just more permanent. Well, and it's interesting because it follows the pattern of a lot of other things in medical education when we realize an important issue and we'll have a day about it and then we realize it should actually be woven into the fabric of what we do. So, you know, I work on the, in the field of domestic violence and trauma-informed care. We used to have a whole day where you learned about that. And then you could pretty much, if you were sick that day, learn nothing or you could forget about it for all the other days of the year when in reality we should be considering that pretty much throughout our work. Same thing with LGBTQIA+, or substance use disorder. These were all things that we'd kind of have like a little high light about. When I was in residency training, we had a whole thing about considering gender, but it was like in a little pocket. I mean, these are all things that we now realize now that they're more established fields of concern and acknowledgement that they should all be woven in. We've alluded to this idea of there being many aspects of wellness, um, whether it's mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, and medicine. And physical wellness is often the automatic focus. But what are your thoughts on the intersection between mental, emotional wellness and physical wellness? And how can we do a better job of creating safe spaces for all aspects of wellness in our patient interactions? This one I think I have something to say about because this is really what trauma-informed care speaks to, right? That that's something that can really be structural in terms of how institutions are built, but even like how the physical building that you do your clinical care is built. What kinds of supports are available for your students and your staff and your faculty for their own well-being, like we were just talking about how that's kind of an evolution. So that by the time the patient gets into the room, there's sort of a whole infrastructure of thoughts about well-being. So you're not having, you know, noise and clashing colors and people abruptly walking into the room. But then when you're within that interaction with patients that people have been trained in some trauma-informed interview and exam techniques that they don't just use if they think somebody is exposed to unwellness, um, that we would use those for every single person and that we would use language that isn't re-traumatizing because we're not sure who's been traumatized, but why would you ever want to use words that could be construed as traumatizing for anybody? Why would you ever want to examine the neck from the back with your hands around somebody when you could stand to the side and examine them? Like that would just be some best practices that are universal. But I have some other things to say about this too, which it you know, I was just in clinic this morning and I think a lot about, you know, sometimes we're searching for the disease and the problem and solving it, right? That's how you all learn to write notes. But what we're really striving for as physicians, I think, is to help people to cultivate their own well-being. I spend a lot of time using these metaphors about flowers in my clinic. It's kind of funny, but so many things can be attacked in a multifaceted way for which a medicine is only one of those facets. So when you think about all aspects of wellness and a person has depression, you can increase or add a medicine, but what flower was ever pretty with two pets? right? You'd have to also consider counseling, the Mediterranean diet, getting outside, mindfulness, exercise, supportive people. Make it a peony. You can think of so many different things that if you evoke from the person the things that help them to be well, they can create their plan. And, you know, I love when the plan doesn't even really include anything that I have to prescribe. It's still a plan. Um, And it's a richer plan because it's actually taking the person's context into account. And so that kind of idea about cultivating that wellness for patients, I'm not sure that we're there for everybody cultivating that for themselves, but that's kind of how I think about my own well-being. I'm trying to do all the things. Put pets on that list since we all know I've got that pet, um, right? That All those things that kind of raise up the serotonin. There's no reason it has to just be things we can put on a prescription pad. From your experience, have you found patients receptive to this idea of doing things other than medicine? 
oh my goodness, I think a lot of them are really craving that. And the thing is, once you open up that space, then they also tell you some of the things that they are actually doing. I actually made a new friend this week, and it's a person with an inflammatory bowel disease who uses um, what we would consider alternative or non-traditional medicines, many of which work on the same biology as the ones that we would like to give. That person has been controlling their sickness without any traditional medicines for a long time. If that person comes into the clinic and I see they are on no meds and they have this sickness, I'm kind of missing the boat if I haven't asked them what they're actually doing to be well. And this person is a yoga practitioner and eats a vegetarian diet, organic foods, makes his own yogurt, you know, is using Ayurveda and all kinds of strategies. And then that person, if they came to my clinic, would not be looking for a prescription necessarily unless the prescription was adjunctive to all those other things. And I'm totally comfortable with that. I mean, I will look up the things that people are doing if I'm not familiar with them to make sure that they're not doing any harm I can identify because... Those things also work on biology. I had a person today who, um, she's quite an educated person, but she had actually really improved her well-being by practicing mindfulness. And we were talking about the parasympathetic nervous system in the room. And last year we were thinking about giving her an SSRI. And this year she was like, I feel so much better now. And there's even more stresses than there were last year, but I'm just coping with them better. And I went on to tell her that I've been teaching people how to do, uh, you know, square breathing in clinic instead of giving them as-needed medicine. So people actually kind of like being in control of their health, I think, by and large. I'm deeply fascinated by just hearing all the clinical stories because, again, I mean, just like those, I don't know, those stories, like they just show you, um, I don't know, just the, the one, the amazing connection, I would say, you know, between, you know, our brain and our mind, what's happening there and the fact that it's connected to, you know, the rest of our body, which makes sense, you know, like that is, that's our brain is how we're able to do all of these amazing things. And it's like the house for our identity and just being able to see, you know, how much taking care of what is going on up in our skull um, can translate, you know, to better care for, for the rest of us. I obviously don't have um, much uh, clinical experience to draw from, but I feel like thinking about the student perspective when I was thinking about this um, question, I, I was reminded of, you know, like we saw a lot of this in our psychiatry block, you know, seeing even with um, just like, you know, somatic manifestations of, of things, you know, that are troubling us in the mind, um, seeing it with some of my close friends and loved ones, um, or even just some of those stories, those anecdotes that you hear about how much a patient's attitude can have such a huge impact on their experience um, and survival with like really tough diagnoses and I don't know it's just it's it's really I don't know miraculous to me sometimes but um, as far as like being a student I think sometimes I I kind of use this in like my clinical weeks or the clinical encounters that we have in in CSEs where I I usually just try to go in and mentally I like put my clipboard or checklist like to the side and honestly I just go in and I don't know use my eyes to like read the energy in the room and pick up on some body language and tone and personality just in the first few sentences of the whole like hi my name is this and like you know how are you and I always like it sounds very formulaic but I ask how how are you twice because the first time you know that they're replying to you like a robot because they think it's just the formality and it's just the classic yep I'm fine but the second time that you ask and honestly like where you go from there is and, and honestly, just following them like wherever they want to go, because, you know, there could be a lot troubling them, but maybe, you know, it could be a coping mechanism to go off on a tangent and and talk about something else going on in their life because they're just they, they need that and they and they want to connect with you and they want you to walk with them through it. Um, but just it's it's a little something that came to mind when thinking about this question, but it's it's something that I want to carry forward in my patient interactions um, that, you know, the clipboard and checklist is is there, but it's not coming out until, you know, you read what is going on in front of you and figure out what they need the most before you try to support them. So just a little student perspective, but obviously the clinical stories are so amazing and so inspiring. Well, I just want to bookmark back in case you want to insert this, but, you know, even this idea that there's mental, emotional wellness and physical wellness, you all know I've given you 
talks about trauma-informed care and, you know, the neurobiologic stuff that happens happens in a developmental way to the whole creature. I mean, I make jokes when I when people don't want to take serotonin reuptake inhibitors because it's a medicine for depression to remind them that, you know, our neck is just that. It's between our head and our body. And serotonin receptors are all over the body. So this idea that we're treating something that's only in the head, it's all one thing. And I think we've boxed ourselves into a funny corner when we call those medicines antidepressants. And we don't get to have the benefit of them for the gut, for example. So I think that general approach of asking about the whole wellness of the person, I don't usually divide it up like that. And I'll even talk about how sometimes we feel things in the body that happened emotionally. So, I mean, it's I think it's all one thing, and that's not usually the way we think about it. I mean, your way of asking the question is totally the way we think about it right now. Um, and thinking about development in neurotransmitters can help us to think about that in a more holistic way. Absolutely. There's definitely that separation of like physical and emotional wellness when, like you said, it's all together. And Anu, I did want to point out, I really like your approach of asking, how are you? Because like you said, that first time, it's kind of like an autonomic, unconscious response of, how are you? I'm good. But that second time around, they're really thinking about it. And like you said, it's more than just a checklist, but it's not going to come out until you actually read the room, read the situation, and figure out what's going on. So I really appreciated that. Yeah, it is very beautiful. And, you know, sometimes you have an agenda that's all about the physical wellness and the things that we're getting quality measures on, and the person has just had a tragedy happen. And that, the same way that you're describing it, that whole list of whatever you think you're supposed to do in order to not get in trouble is out the window. I had a recent CBLC student who was a little frustrated by that initially because she knew what to do about all these things, and then we couldn't get them done sometimes in the room. It's like, well, in the room is actually in life, and we can't always get all those things done because there's other things that are superseding. Switching gears a little bit, when we talk about the road to medicine, right, we often refer to it as a marathon. The road is long, it's tough, and you can't take it at a sprint. What would you say are the big challenges that aspiring physicians grapple with, both during medical school and in residency, and how can we tackle them? And this is a little more directed to Dr. Weil, as a new Peter and I are figuring that out for ourselves. I think it's a hard question, and the fact that you're even asking these questions now you're so far ahead of where I was in trying to kind of discover it and figure it out myself. But it's like what I mentioned at the beginning. Like, I used to think I didn't have time to do my laundry when I was a medical student because I had so much studying to do. And I think over time, we just get better at doing some things. And the more you schedule things that might be positive, the more you fit in the work that you have to do, the more you can actually do the things that are joyous in life. Um, and I think one of the biggest things that people struggle with is that you're all kind of growing up individuals trying to make decisions about your whole life. Um, and that often doesn't go on the four-year or the five-year plan, especially if it relates to finding partners or having kids. And for a lot of people, those things are important. And, you know, we used to almost not talk about them at all. Like, I remember realizing, wow, after residency, all my friends are working part-time and we never had a single panel about how to be a parent and a doctor, right? I mean, think about, though things have a long way to go, how many different kinds of panels you have about things that might happen in the future that could be relevant or interesting to you. So we had none of that. And then all of us were kind of like finding our way in the darkness, realizing we couldn't do two full-time jobs really well at the same time. Duh, right? So it's true. It's so strange. But, you know, so certainly those making those life decisions along with your career decision, it's a lot to think about because each of those things is its whole own full thing, right? And trying to make them fit in, I think it puts a lot of stress on relationships and a lot of stress on studies. So 
you know, I got married as a second year med student, but I was an older student when I went to med school. And I was far apart from my partner for the first year or two of med school, and I missed him. And then he followed me, and then we had to worry about his career, so then I followed him. And, you know, all that sort of taking of turns is also invisible stuff when you're making your decision. It's not usually only your decision, or it might not only be your decision. And, you know, as hard as that can be, it's also joyous because it focuses the mind a little bit because there are so many places where you could go and get great training. And if you have a reason you need to go to a particular place, well, then you have sort of more limited things to to weigh and consider. I didn't mind it as much as I thought I might. And sometimes I meet with students who are like, I'm going to apply to every state. There's really no way I can discern at all where I might want to be. And I'm always trying to get them to make this sort of priority, life priority list. You all haven't gotten there yet, but there's a life priority list for the decision-making about residency. And it could include, I need to be in a place with sunlight. I need to be in a warm place. I need to be near my family. I need to go where my partner can go. I want to be in a countryside where I can be in nature. I want to be in an urban place where I can go to do arts things. Like figuring out your holistic life priorities and trying to make those a part of the residency decision will actually help that decision to be happier. Because there are a lot of different places you could go. But, you know, then the next decision from that is figuring out what kind of job you want to have. I wasn't sure that I wanted to do general medicine or academic medicine. That kind of came to me in process, and I didn't have a lot of career counseling about it along the way. Had hardly any career counseling in medical school. I mean, we are doing a lot more things than we used to do. So your journeys will probably be very different from my journeys. Um, But then there was a – because I was an older student, suddenly I got a job, and that was the moment to have kids right? So that's very incompatible. You're trying to do something really hard. You're finally getting a job. And you're also trying to start a family, each of which could be full-time occupations. And you're trying to balance them at the same time. So those aren't the issues for everybody. But I think many people grapple with the finding the partner, having kids, things, if those are important priorities, along with doing all those other well-being kind of things. And at some point, you have to keep studying for board tests. So I remember the first board test for internal medicine, I was with my cat's chief resident, sitting on a picnic table. My husband was on a trip. I thought I was totally overwhelmed. When I recertified for the boards, I had a full-time job and two small children, and I was still studying for that same darn test after work. Following time, same thing, only kids were in high school, right? So it's, and my mother was ill, right? There's just like, there are always like layers and layers of, of new life challenges that you're mixing in with the same similar school challenges, which are not insignificant either. I think that's such a good answer. And you touched on kind of like this overarching idea of life doesn't stop, even if you're consumed and full diving into medicine or learning in medical school or residency or even in your practice as an attending. There's still life going on around you and you need to find that balance, um, whether it's you and your cats at the picnic table or your children. There's more to, I guess, what we're doing than just what we are doing at that time. So thank you for that answer. Kind of adding to that, working in medicine requires a lot of intellectual prowess, but it also takes a great deal of heart and emotional intelligence. We're all lifelong learners here. So what are your recommendations for how we can continue to develop our emotional intelligence as we go through our lives and our careers? Are there any worthwhile exercises that we should try to regularly incorporate into our routines or resources such as books, TED Talks, that we should take a look at, especially when things in life don't go the way we want it? Again, you're asking a great and really hard question because I think it's very personal, right? What what makes you expand and, and gather that? For me, it's definitely reading books. I really I read a lot of literary fiction and memoir and philosophy and psychology books, and I think it's all trying to understand 
really like different human perspectives on life. And, you know, it's different than stereotyping, but sometimes I meet a person from a part of the world where I've never met anybody before, and I've read a book that took place in that part. So I don't assume that the person has those experiences, but sometimes I can ask a question that kind of knocks them off their kilter a little bit because I know something about some aspect of back home that they don't expect that I've even been interested in or have any knowledge about. Um, I remember that particularly with somebody from Ethiopia where I'd read that Verghese book, and it was just an amazing sort of in-depth thing. And there were ways in which that was comparable to some of my own experiences living in Sri Lanka. And people don't assume that I have those experiences either. So if I ask questions about any kind of back-home place where I've had some travel experience or reading experience, I think that brings me closer to the person. It doesn't mean I know everything about them because I've read that story. But it gives me some idea of what some stories may be like for some people in some of those places. So so that's a way I feel like I cultivate some additional information about, about people. And it's also that way that I try to answer answer some of my own questions by drawing on different people's experiences. You know, conversely, one of my kids, I think, is extremely emotionally intelligent, and he's not a big reader. He just listens really closely when people talk, and he feels. So I think there's everything between those two things is a way that that can happen. Some of it is more natural than it is cultivated, and I think there are ways to cultivate it by kind of minding other people's experiences, too. Not a definitive answer to that question by any means. No, I really appreciate that thought, honestly, because, you know, in thinking about, you know, like you said, there's just so many ways. There's no there's no one size fits all. Um, I will say, I think, like when I was thinking about this question, um, I thought of one TED Talks because um, this past summer, a colleague and I had led um, a a seminar called The Art of Being Human. Um, And it was inspired by a course that we're going to talk about in a little bit. But uh, when I was kind of working on building uh, a session for one of those, I I found a lot of great TED Talks on just concepts that I've found in conversation. Um, So again, alluding to the the idea, again, there's so many ways to do this. Um, It's not just consuming books or consuming TED Talks and such, but um, I did want to put a plug for a few of these TED Talks that I honestly found really great. One uh, is called Self-Compassion for the Self-Critical with Susan David. Second one is The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage, also with Susan David. Um, And lastly, why we all need to practice emotional first aid uh, with Guy Winch, I believe if I'm pronouncing the name right. But all of those, um, those concepts, self-compassion, emotional courage and emotional first aid, they were they were very resonant. They were concepts that like I felt a lot of people could resonate with and I thought they were very powerfully delivered. But outside of TED Talks, I want to echo what Dr. Wiles said, where I think the biggest thing that I have found is just having deep conversations with folks um for the people that do know me i'm a sucker for them they're honestly it's how i it's how i build relationships it's how i don't know it's it's where i get my energy from um and i always say that you know it's a privilege to to hear people's stories and you know as much as it's it's something that i'm talking about is like it's very life-giving to me like i i never forget that it's it's not you know it's not my right to hear someone's story it's a privilege and i think the biggest thing that you could bring to these conversations is like an open heart and an open mind to what you're hearing. And just recently, I can tell you, I mean, I, I talk about this sort of stuff so much with my, with my friends and loved ones. And yet even recently, this past weekend, I was I was talking with someone, someone new, and I still found some new inspirations for things that I wanted to write or new ideas for like, wow, this concept, like I could put this into a poem or, you know, like, for example, 
just thinking about um, someone was sharing their story with me and I'm like, you know, everyone has either got scars or skeletons. And then we both had a moment where we just froze and looked at each other. And I was like, I need to write that down. But it's just, you know, it's, it's like little things like that where the more, you know, there's always something to learn no matter how much you've been in a space or with a subject. And I think like I love having those conversations and realizing there's another way to think about something. There's another way to add to your healing. Um, and you get that from talking with each other and, you know, seeing what comes from those conversations. And I think the last thing I'll, I'll kind of end this question with, because I could go on forever, um, is that something else that came out of that conversation was a new way to define listening, which I had said was like listening isn't just sitting in silence. It's moving with what you hear and engaging it, because I can tell you. I could talk to a wall if all I wanted you to do was listen to me, but it's very different if you've got active listening, when you've got a person that's sitting there and is hearing what you're saying and truly, you know, engaging with it and moving with you through through reliving that stuff. I totally agree with that. And in engaging and, and living with you and moving through that, I remembered something important I wanted to say <laughs> about, about the kind of reading that I actually do do, which is a lot of what people might view as kind of sad stories, like memoirs about health and illness are kind of a favorite. I've got shelves full of them in my house and a few on in uh, the now new non-shelf uh, iPhone audiobook land um, but a lot of the books that that move me might be construed as oh that's a sad story why would you want to read about that and I think it is that there are things to mine and learn from people telling their stories of skeletons and scars that, that that there's something really meaningful in that and I can highlight a recent book that may be interesting to you all which you made me think of Anu called Bittersweet I don't know if you've heard of it um, by Susan Cain. I think she has podcasts, and some people love podcasts. Um, but it's basically about how people, that there's a certain type, and I think a lot of them may be health providers, who are drawn to hearing sad stories, and that there's something about a sad story or sad and poignant music that moves us towards meaning, and that look at what we're all planning to do for our careers is we're going to be working with people who are experiencing some kind of difficulty and thinking that we can offer something to help make it better. So I think that's a really pretty interesting and very well-researched book that I want to highlight that's actually a newer book that I got a lot from. With reading these memoirs that might otherwise be construed as sad stories, why would you want to hear it? I am curious, in your role as a physician as well as a human being, um, do you find these bolstering your own ability for self-care? Or do you find it better in the sense of extending wellness to your patients and the people that you interact with? I think it's both because something interesting that um, Susan Cain touches on in that bittersweet book, like I'm thinking of another book at the same time that I'm talking about that one called Hollywood Park. I don't know if anybody's read that um, by a person, Mikhail Jolet, who was a kid in Synanon, which started out as a drug rehab place and kind of became a cult. Um, but he he has written a beautiful memoir about his life and he's become a musician and a writer um, from his experiences that are very insightful about a sort of traumatic childhood. But I guess the awe that I feel when people have gone gone through something difficult and come out the other side with insights and kind of well-being, I feel like that is that extends both things. I think it kind of, it really is uplifting, which you don't think of, the, you know, I don't think I'm a morose person, and yet I sometimes read stories that might be considered sad. I find them kind of inspiring and uplifting, which is maybe a weird health provider thing. But um, I think it's, it, I can bring it to the clinical encounter, but I can also just feel the awe about that person and what they've been through and who, who they are because of the difficulties and the strengths that they bring. And to borrow some words from Anu, it's a privilege to hear those stories. And kind of like what you said earlier, listening is a dynamic process as well, whether it is in person or reading a story. And in the spirit of having more spaces to reinforce wellness in medicine, 
We've heard a lot about this wonderful elective that Anu alluded to earlier. This elective is offered at UNC in the spring semester, and it's called The Healer's Art. Could you tell us more about it? I am delighted to tell you more about it because I've been involved with it for a really long time. And I think, I don't know, maybe not coincidentally, what I'm talking about kind of goes to a lot of what that course is about. So we, you, you led into that beautifully, didn't you? It was so well done. <laughs> so smooth. Trying to tie in everything together. It's amazing. It's a, theor- it's a theory of everything. Um, so this, this uh, course was created by a doctor named Rachel Remen, uh, Rachel Naomi Remen who is a pediatrician in her 80s now who has lived with colitis her whole life. But she also lived with sexism in medicine when she was a younger doctor and in um, disparaging of emotions, genuine emotions in medicine. So she would cry if a child was sick. She was a pediatrician, and people would kind of look at her in a way that she was weak. And this was at Cornell. Like, she had gotten excellent training at fine institutions that have great reputations. But I think she, she was having a real crisis relating to her personal health. She's had, I think, a dozen operations for her colitis, and she's trying to serve other people and she was feeling like there were parts of her that she couldn't bring to the encounter and I think out of that came a kind of transformation in her own career where she changed to do things including um, counseling doctors who were burned out we've never heard about those we've managed to have an entire conversation about well-being without saying those two words together I'm so proud and I'm sorry I broke it oh my goodness that's so true right Um, sorry Um, and also uh, cancer patients Uh, And I think she's actually transformed medicine because the other thing she did was create this healer's art course. And I've been involved with it since 2005. UNC was a slightly later comer to it. But um, Dr. Bayat Steiner, who many of you know, and Dr. Bob Gwyther, who some of you may not know, they were the original people who went and got trained by her in California. And I got trained subsequently and had been a co-course director for the class for many years. But her idea was to try to literally, she of course had a medical metaphor, to inoculate medical students about what was to come in their training so that they could actually not lose their humanity and their joy. Um, and so she's very was very prescriptive about how the course was to run. And it was in the evening in the wintertime, so we're already kind of eliminating some people who might not want to come out for this. But it's I think it's really sort of a, a salve and an inoculation for joy, because I keep going and teaching it in the dead of winter in the dark myself. Um, but it's five sessions. There's a little seed talk by faculty members that serve in rotation. I've given a couple of them over the years. Um, And then kind of activities that used to be even a little more out of the box than they are now, some drawing or writing, talking about feelings, things like that. Then small group work together with faculty who serve not as your teacher, but actually as co-participants. So that's also quite unique um, and really fun. And I think the feeling and understanding that you all might have more things in common than be different is a really strong bonding thing. And a lot of those small groups go on to be friends for a very long time and supports for each other. My recent one, I think they're all going to Asheville together. So that's kind of kind of really cool because it's hard to get connected as a medical student. Um, but the, the topic areas are um, your identity and wholeness and what you might be leaving behind in medicine is, is the first time. Two sessions about grief, which so this is not for the faint of heart, but it's like, what are we doing when we are working in medicine? Sometimes we deal with grief. One session on awe and a final session on service as a way of life. So it's very aspirational in terms of what you might want to be building for yourself if you want to be the kind of doctor you probably started out wanting to be and hopefully are continuing to be able to thrive and become um, with the support of your peers which include the faculty. Yeah, so that's that's my free ad for that. And um, they will put out the dates for you if, if you're interested. Yeah, I think, well, uh, at least I remember last year, so I was fortunate to have taken this elective, so I just want to put a huge student plug for it as well. But I believe, students, you will get to hear about it in your SHS course, so definitely keep an eye out, out for that. Um, uh, the rest of the semester. You should be hearing about it very soon. But I just want to say very briefly that I 
I, I am so happy that I took the course. And honestly, there were people that I met in my small group that had taken the course multiple times, actually. So it's that great. Um, and honestly, it's just a space for you to seriously focus on yourself and to um, connect with other people. And, and like Dr. Wells said, even faculty um, in a way that you may not otherwise get opportunities to do so. So it's, again, an incredible privilege. Um, it's an incredible space for crudely speaking therapy um, through, you know, collective conversation. Um, and I don't know, it's just it was a very wholesome experience. I got a piano out of it. That's a very long story. But that was something that I had said in the first session that I was missing. And someone, lo and behold, in my group helped me rediscover and fill that hole. So, again, amazing experiences, amazing stories. So seriously, I think there's something for everyone in it. I must say, I cannot promise that others will get a piano if they <laughs> join in the healer's art. But there is a real sort of um, primacy put on listening. So you don't actually have to be a big talker. And sometimes people are quite quiet in class. But over the years, people have made many discoveries about themselves and I think improved their well-being in, in ways that I will not be more specific about. But, you know, a person who was listening for many sessions and then suddenly spoke finally and had a real epiphany that was something about helping them to feel a lot better in life. Um, I've, I acquired an, a mentee. I didn't get a piano. But I got a mentee from my last group um, who were still in touch very closely, so that's kind of cool. This elective sounds amazing, and I love how unique it is and the way it, it helps students and, and physicians kind of look into themselves and focus on wellness for an elective. On a fun note, uh, tell us what comprises your emotional first aid kit. Oh my goodness. So I, I was smiling about that because I was thinking I was going to try to stuff everything in that's important, which of course is impossible, but it's at least going to include my dog, my husband, my two kids, my good friends, quite a few books. Maybe I can just put the phone in there and I can get all the audiobooks I want. The yoga class, nature, healthy foods, travel, right? It's like my garden. All the stuff that are things that I love should be in there. I don't... I. Truly, I, you listed almost everything that I could think of um, in my own context. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I feel like the biggest thing for me is um, music actually is maybe something that I will add, actually, um, because truly music has been a space for me ever since I was young where I always felt safe. I always felt understood. You know, there's something about finding lyrics that really resonate with anything that you might be going through that, or that kind of, you know, see you or that uplift you. And that has been the biggest part of my first aid kit since for, for years. Um, and it's, it's somewhere, it's a bubble for me. Every time I put my headphones on, it's just an instant recharging moment, even just in between classes and things like that. Like that is, that is something that gives me life um, and, and just recharges me. But in addition to mentioning, you know, just all the loved ones that, you know, I'm grateful to have met and that I, I'm still might meet, you know, because that's the thing, like life is continuous. You're still going to meet amazing people. It's not just the folks that you do have now or the folks that you, you know, did know at one point. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think music, loved ones, obviously some of the other things that I mentioned as part of my identity, I'm grateful to have them and they keep me grounded. I think it's also trying new experiences just to add that in. Two weeks ago, I participated in a professional dance performance, and I hadn't done any dance since I was in high school, and I had just always wanted to work with this particular person. I've been following his dances for 25 years, and we had this opportunity to be like a community mover in a performance, and I practiced for a week in the night, thinking that you didn't, I had no time for that, and then performed for two nights in the Carolina Performing Arts. It was insane. That's incredible. Oh, Congratulations. <laughs> just a wacky thing to, to mention that was just, I think that, you know, constantly trying new things or thing, or revisiting things that you loved, like it's never too late to do something that you thought 
how will I ever get to do that in my life? So that, that was a recent sort of joyous experience. Can I also let you ratchet in about the healer's art that the current course directors are Dr. Dana Iglesias and Dr. Sue Sladkoff, who is doing that as an emeritus professor, and then I'm no longer a leader of that course. I'm just a seller of the course. Make sure you get credit to them. A strong advocate. Yeah, that we want to make their, put their names out there. I'm sorry I neglected to say that. It didn't flow with what I was saying. Well, thank you for sharing your uh, personal emotional first aid kits. Um, and with that, these are all the questions that we have for you guys today. We'd like to leave room right now for you to share any other thoughts or insights that you might have. And this could be about anything really, whether it's about wellness, life, medicine, beyond. I don't have anything written down, but I, I appreciate getting to think about this in this way because I think it's expanded my thinking about it. And it's the kind of thing we don't talk about so overtly. So I think you're doing a great service to our community by getting us to talk out loud about hard things. There, there are three things that are sitting in my mind. I know. I will keep it brief. Um, uh, one thing about perfectionism, I was thinking about this kind of earlier in relation to, you know, some challenges that I can think of that I still see sometimes in med school. And this is something that I definitely struggle with, um, you know, coming as in college, I think maybe it was it was something in some capacity from talking with others in my conversations with others. I've seen that it was something that more people than I expected could relate to as well. Um, and the idea of letting go of perfection, like perfectionism and being a perfectionist was something that I really had to spend all of college um, kind of going through. And it's it's still a continuous process, but I think I've definitely seen even in, in medicine, I think we still maybe hold on to some of that, you know, that mindset and stuff from when we were pre-med students and just like having to check all the boxes and, and do X, Y, and Z. And if we didn't do this perfectly, then like, oh my gosh, how are we going to get into med school? Um, and I think just a lot of that angst, I know I'm talking about perfectionism just in the context of medicine, but honestly, I mean, being a perfectionist, it can pervade to so many aspects of your life. And I remember experiencing that and just honestly suffering with my mental and emotional health because I couldn't come to terms with the fact that I'm a human being. And honestly, I, I think like kind of swapping out for the, the language of saying, you know, I, I think oftentimes people are now saying like, I am perfectly imperfect. But honestly, I, I'm even opting now for just saying I'm perfectly human. And I think just within just saying that, you know, being a human being means that, you know, there's going to be grace involved um, in, in terms of giving yourself grace and not everything is going to go smoothly and perfectly. And I think that's just something that I want to echo out there. Like, I honestly had to do a college level TED talk with my friend. We were both having to vocalize that we're being recovering perfectionists for us to get this started for us. And I want to say I'm much happier now not being a perfectionist. And I've, you know, I kind of go with the flow a little bit more. And that's coming from a type A person. Trust me, I'm still type A. Um, but, you know, just having space for that has been so important. Second thing about resilience, this actually came up um, in a conversation with um, the same person where I had these random strokes of inspiration for writing. Um, but I think oftentimes, you know, when we're going through difficult things, we we really, you know, I think sometimes the buzz language is to think about like anchoring yourself in the silver linings or, or the good things that are present in your life. And interestingly enough, the person that I was talking to was actually struggling to even characterize themselves as resilient, even after they told me their stories, because they were saying that, you know, I have all these good things. I, I'm fortunate to have all of these things. So like, why am I, you know, it, it, there's just no reason for me to be, you know, feeling upset or feeling negative things because of things that are going on, because I have all of these good things. Um, and honestly, one of the things that came out of my mouth was saying that, you know, like resilience, you know, isn't about, you know, the things that are there. Honestly, it's sometimes about the things that are there that shouldn't be there. Um, and that was something that was, I don't know, a point where honestly, even I sat there and paused and thought about it for a little bit. But it's just it's it's a little something to kind of give kudos to folks and give yourself kudos that, you know, you've 
all, you know, again, going back to the scars and skeletons, everyone's gone through things. You've made it here. And, you know, that takes a lot of strength and resilience wherever you are in your life. Um, and you deserve to give yourself credit for that. You deserve to give yourself grace when things didn't go as perfectly as they did. To add one last thing about resilience, a conversation with a friend recently made me realize how misleading the term resilience can be. Because you can have privilege, advantage, good things, and still encounter adversity. And having good things while tackling the things that shouldn't be there doesn't make you less resilient or less characteristic of going through a tough time. And on the note of good things, I want to briefly talk about social support because I think another common misconception is that the tag of resilience is earned if you weather your storm alone. And reality check, humans are social creatures and life, like medicine, is a team sport. Every positive outcome is the product of any number of helping hands, impactful conversations, and serendipitous events. And those stepping stones don't detract from our resilience or our strength. They honestly, they reinforce them and they keep them even stronger. I mentioned earlier in the conversation that my childhood under understanding of my Rajput identity was that I had to hide my struggles from most of society, otherwise people would perceive me as weak and take advantage. And it's taken many years, but I've realized the flaws in that thinking and now want to advocate for a message about the strength and vulnerability and how we can build a more humane, united community through sharing with each other and lifting each other up. And finally, I know I said three things, but on a parting note to tie it all together, I want to wrap up with some action items that I think we can all do alongside thinking about the abstract stuff we talked about today. So number one, use the resources, both human and non-human, around you to reinforce your wellness. Within the UNC School of Medicine, this means our CAPS counselors, advisors, peer support advocates, med school friends. Outside the UNC School of Medicine, this means our psychiatrists and therapists, family, friends, neighbors, and pets. My sister always tells me that we have a limited time on this earth, so it's important to spend that time with the ones we love and the ones that bring us joy. Number two, be intentional and make time for the activities that bring you joy. It's so easy for things to get thrown to the wayside when we tell ourselves that we'll do something once XYZ is over. Newsflash, there will always be something. So find a moment to pause and figure out how you can schedule those joy giving activities into your busy life. Maybe that's a five minute daily meditation right before bedtime or a yoga class three times a week at 5:30 PM, whatever it looks like for you, sprinkle it in regularly. So you can keep giving back to yourself while giving your all to life because intentional time for joyful activities is one of the most important recipes for burnout prevention. And lastly, number three, Keep having conversations like these with others and with yourself. Take the time to ask someone how they're really doing and listen generously to engage with what they say, not just to receive the information and keep walking forward. These repeated conversations will continue to hack away at existing mental health stigma and go a long way. And when I say to have those conversations with yourself too, I mean to take your own temperature and think about how your own journey with wellness is at any point in life. Because honestly, as humans, we're all changing creatures and what works for us may change throughout life. So have those conversations and check-ins regularly because in all honesty, self-awareness is key to taking care of yourself and taking care of yourself is key to being able to take care of others. Self-care and a healthy amount of selfishness have to go hand in hand with selflessness, forgiving, 
to be sustainable. And last thing, just want to give a shout out, honestly, to just us having this conversation and honestly, the things that we've seen even in our med school, the student wellness task force and all the efforts that they've done, you know, Maddie and Mallory and Dr. Jerkin um, and just all of all of the other folks, you know, even our advocate work, just trying to build community and, you know, reach out and be there for people. Um, it just, you know, I think it's amazing. It's beautiful to see. And I just wanted to continue. Um, so, yeah, I mean, thank you all so much for having us and talking about this stuff. I know you always inspire me. And can I say one or two things that, that came to mind when you were talking? See, because you're you're you got the great ideas. So the first one was this idea about being recovering perfectionists. Actually, when I used to give talks about wellness, particularly, I would always have the slide about being a neurotic perfectionist, right? If you get 20 compliments and one critique, only the critique is left by the end. That's like what we hone in on. And it's just such a such a thing. I think med students and doctors do it more, but lots of people have perfectionism. And my yoga teacher likes to say that his whole class is made up of recovering pushers, that you're either a pusher or a sensualist, and everyone who goes to his class is a pusher in recovery. So even, even yoga teachers viewed these things in this way. And I think that the yoga can kind of stabilize some of that. And the, he does some very good reading from books that make you think more about that. Um, and just a, another comment about resilience, because that's often thought to be the other side of, of trauma, right? That building resilience, it, the, the thing you were saying about extras. Um, there's this beautiful Japanese concept called kintsugi, where when something is broken, they replace. It, it, it comes from pottery, I think. Um, and when when a pottery piece of pottery is being re repaired, they use gold or silver to kind of put it back together, and it actually becomes a thing that is more beautiful than the thing was before it was broken. So maybe that's something in that light of having more things, but those more things maybe can can add and make it more lovely. That's such a beautiful note to end on. Anu did it. No. <laughs> Team effort. <laughs> Um, before we end, again, as Anu mentioned, we want to give a big shout out to the Student Wellness Task Force, especially because they do a lot of work to foster and support a culture of wellness for students throughout their medical education, and they offer a lot of resources for students. Um, with that, Dr. Weil and Anu, this has been an incredibly valuable talk. Thank you both for sharing some of your time and insight with us. Wellness is a topic that cannot be emphasized or talked about enough, so we're glad that we could spend some time today to dive a little deeper and keep the conversation going. To our listeners, that was Dr. Amy Weil and MS2 Anamika Singh, and a little snapshot into wellness and medicine. My name is Peter. Thanks for having us. Thanks for asking me hard questions. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure having you guys. My name is Abdul. Please remember to follow the Tar Heel Prescription on Instagram to keep up with our speaker highlights and upcoming episodes. And keep giving us feedback by filling out the Google form or contacting us directly. Thank you for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on the Tar Heel Prescription.